is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast, part of the Seneca Network from SubChina. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I am your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, and just tell me when and where, and I'll be there 20 minutes late. My co-host is John Pazden, co-founder of Manor Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese Grammar Wiki, Sinosplice.com, and told me his wife has this weird habit of starting conversations by saying, are you even listening to me? At what stage should you start learning Chinese characters? John and I are going to unpack this subject so you can find your own answer that might be later or earlier than you might think. Guest interview is with Adam DeFrisco, who found the courage to make huge life-changing decisions that brought him to China. All this and more, let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner coming at you from Utah in the United States. And I'm John Pazden. I am in Shanghai, China. Hey guys. All right, Johnny, before we kick into things today, we've got a couple of reviews. You want to lead us off? All right. Okay, this one is from DJ Becky Beck. And uh, DJ says, great podcast. Many people may find the idea of listening to a podcast on learning Chinese as just as enjoyable as getting a root canal, but John and Jared's podcast is more like devouring an ice cream sundae. You just can't get enough of it. I've been learning Chinese for the last six months now, and I feel like I finally honed my study methods to be as efficient as possible. However, I still find listening to how different people became fluent in Chinese and how to overcome the intermediate barrier is very inspiring and motivating. Also, I cannot stop raving about the Manor Comparing series. I literally plowed through level two in a week, including the newly released Jekyll and Hyde. I feel like going from Manor Companion to other graded reader series is like going from driving a Ferrari to switching to a Honda Civic. Both get you where you're going, but one of them is far more fun. I tried the Pleco graded readers as I find that their level system isn't as consistent as yours, and I'm using the pop-up dictionary too much. So please make more level two and also level three. Jiayo. All right, we hear you, and we're glad that you're enjoying the graded readers. All right, thanks, DJ Becky Beck. And I think it's Becky, not DJ. Whatever. This also gives us a little chance to tease something out. Newsflash, our graded readers are going to end up on Playco soon, so stay tuned for that. Okay, John, our next review, it's a little different review. It's not really about the podcast, but uh, we've talked about this on our podcast before. We have our merchandise on our website, and this is an excellent story to read to you guys. So we have these T-shirts that says, you know, so, you know, speak Chinese with me. And here's what Lisa says. She says, my speak Chinese with me T-shirt worked. I was attending my first Toastmaster session, and a lady came up to me to say hello and kept looking at my top. After a brief conversation, she asked me if I knew Ni Hao. She has since invited me and my family to Chinese New Year on the weekday in a nearby town. I live in Australia and are still able to have COVID-safe events. Cheers, Lisa, otherwise known as Li Hua. Well, that is awesome, Lisa. I am so happy to hear that. Like, you, your t-shirt worked. This was the whole idea, right? You can wear that t-shirt around and strike up conversations. And look at that. You had a, a New Year's engagement all because of it. Yeah, that's pretty much the best case scenario for this t-shirt. And it does happen. You wear it. People notice it, and people do speak to you in Chinese. Awesome. All right, so now we're going to get into our main topic today, which is a question that we've gotten many times. Uh, my clients are always asking me this question. It's, when should I start learning characters? Um, now, obviously, this is not a question for people who are studying like you know, a course in university where they have no choice. It's like uh, you, know, you start on characters in week three, then uh, that's what you got to do if you want to pass the, the class. 
But um, a lot of you out there are kind of learning at your own pace. Maybe you're learning with a tutor. Maybe you're studying on your own. Uh, maybe you're learning some of these, uh, you know, platforms or apps or whatever. And you do have some freedom as to how heavy into characters you go, how early. And um, that is something that is somewhat personal. It does vary a little bit from person to person, but there's some good advice we can give you. Absolutely. So we are going to get into some very personal issues here. Well, no, not exactly right. <laughs> very personal. But, you know, th this is a very good topic. All right. So if you've listened to our, our series on uh, learning to read Chinese, then you know that the very first thing you should do as you start learning Chinese is to really master the pinyin first. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And if you really think about this, as I like to say, uh, it's something I learned picked up from Terry Waltz. She says it's, you're, you're trying to match, you know, a squiggle with a sound. Well, you know, in Chinese, you could even argue that we have, you know, two written forms that you're trying to learn to pronounce. You know, you could say that, you know, okay, well, the pinyin, that's just the phonetic spelling, but the character. Now, we don't really necessarily always look at it that way, but, you know, it's a bit of a two-step process, but, you know, you got to take that first step before the second one. Right. And I also want you to think about Chinese kids. Now, we've mentioned many times in our podcast about how sometimes Chinese teachers or Chinese courses tend to treat uh, foreign learners of Chinese kind of like Chinese kids are treated when they're learning to read and write. And um, the thing about Chinese kids is they're totally fluent in Chinese before they learn to start reading and writing characters. Now, there's no way you're going to be totally fluent in Chinese before you start reading and writing characters, uh, probably. But you can at least have a stronger foundation in pinyin and pronunciation before you start reading and writing characters. Okay, so now what I want to do is explore a little bit, like uh, down one of these uh, what-ifs, one of these parallel universes. What if you were to delay characters really long? What would happen? So suppose, suppose you know, Fluency is really important to you, speaking and listening. And it seems like characters are just a distraction. They're, take, they're taking up so much time. Like, why do you even want to spend so much time on that now? Why not just get really fluent without learning characters? You ever thought about doing that, Jared? Yeah, you know, honestly, when I first started learning Chinese, I just thought that characters were going to be too difficult. And I'd started learning with a program that didn't include characters. I don't know if later on it did or not. I didn't get that far in the program, but... You know, honestly, I had a, a good friend of mine, Vaughn Wilhelm. He said, hey, Jared, I think, I think you can do this. And he was a smart guy because, you know, he told me to do it and I could do it. But I, I can say that over the years, John, I've met people. I remember this one guy, his wife uh, and mine were friends, but he'd been in China for quite a long time and he spoke pretty good Chinese, but he never learned characters. I mean, he didn't even know like Ni Hao. He could maybe know like one, two, three, you know, ER San. But uh, he just, he never took the time to learn characters and he didn't think it was, you know, that important to him. So he was, you know, had a good spoken proficiency, but never learned the characters. Okay. Now, when you said good spoken proficiency, like at what level? Was it super advanced? You know, this is a, a good question. Uh, and I think I was a little skeptical, you know, I think about his Chinese ability. And one time we were, our families were, got together and I sat down and we had a conversation and I was really asking him about this. And it kind of came clear to me that he was kind of like stuck at that intermediate plateau mm. because, you know, there comes at that point where you, if you don't learn characters, you're not going to learn the difference between, you know, shi, shi, and shi, or that hui, hui, or what all the different homonyms there are. 
you may not be able to fully delineate all those differences. And so that really impedes your, I think, your ability to, you know, reach deeper depths of understanding and meaning of the language. And so he was kind of stuck there. Right. Okay. Well, let, let me uh, let me kind of answer the question, which is the title of the podcast. When should you start learning characters? I think for most people, you want to start around the elementary level and maybe at the latest, the intermediate level. Because if you keep pushing it off, what happens is as your vocabulary starts to grow larger and larger, then all these all these words that kind of sound the same, maybe they sound the same with just a slightly different tone, like you don't really have a way of keeping them straight. You might have like all these notes of pinyin, but it's so easy to forget tones. It's easy to forget like, is that the same E or is that a different E? Like, I don't know because I can't read the characters. And as you keep trying to grow your vocabulary, you start to feel like you've built this foundation on sand. And like, as you keep building more, you just keep slipping back down because it's really hard to hold on to it. So John, have you encountered learners before who have, you know, been in this scenario? Yeah, I have. And like I, I, I had one guy who was um, a really quite advanced speaker. I guess I would call him like B2, upper intermediate. And um, his Chinese was quite good, but he did, he did have this problem of he felt like he couldn't keep acquiring vocabulary because he couldn't keep all the words and the word roots straight. Like in linguistics, we call these morphemes. Like in English, if you're, uh, if you're an advanced reader, then you know that there are like word roots, you know, Greek and Latin roots. Mm-hmm. And knowing the different pieces of these words and what they mean kind of helps you understand and quickly learn new words that build on that same system, right? Would it be like in English, like the suffix ology, right? You know, study of, right? Right, right. Or, you know, you know, theo, you know, theo means God and theology means study of God, something like that, right? Yeah. So in Chinese, um, there's no Greek and Latin roots, There's just more Chinese, like ancient Chinese, classical Chinese, and Chinese builds upon itself. Mm. So a lot of the uh, the classical Chinese is not words, but it's uh, it's pieces of words that you have to learn. And so by learning the characters, you're learning the building blocks for your future vocabulary. And it's not apparent right away because in the beginning you're still learning everything. Everything is new, but if you keep at it and you know the characters and you keep uh, you know, reaching to the upper intermediate levels, then all those characters you know are all the building blocks for new words, and it becomes so much easier to hold on to it in your memory, what you're acquiring. So, John, I think that maybe someone listening to this podcast, they might be asking this question, saying, like, well, how do I know? How do I know when I'm ready to start learning characters? All right, so that's a good question, and I think for a lot of people, if they're actually enthusiastic and curious and interested about characters, then don't wait too long. Um, do learn your pinyin first. Do learn the sounds of the language, but you don't have to wait till you're intermediate or even elementary um, to just kind of pick up a book and start learning the the building blocks of the you know the character system. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I, I think this podcast is largely meant for those people who are kind of afraid or they think it's going to be too much of a time sink and they just keep putting it off and putting it off and they want some kind of answer about like. When should I learn characters or do I even really need to or why do I need to? Mm-hmm. And I think it's also good to point out is that there's probably some people who've been in classes and they're just thrown straight in the deep end. And their they're lao shi is saying, hey, you know, go home and, you know, write these 20 characters 100 times every night. And you're like, ah, you know, how, how am I supposed to learn this? Yeah, so, so that would be the opposite situation, right? The person who maybe starts learning characters too early. 
because, uh, I don't know, someone's just pushing them like, there's thousands of characters. You need to start learning five a day. You're never going to learn them all. Mm -hmm. And um, that's not really good advice if you haven't, you know, established a foundation for the sounds of the language. Because, you know, you're learning characters, you're learning pinyin for each character, and you don't even really know how to pronounce it. Uh, that's that's not such a good idea. But I've seen people that do that, especially people in China. They just got here. They haven't studied before they came. And they're trying to learn characters. They're trying to learn pinyin. They're trying to get tone straight. They're trying to figure out the grammar. Um, and they're dealing with culture shock. Like, it really is too much to deal with all at once. Yeah, I totally agree. And once again, that, that plays back into how native Chinese had learned Chinese. You know, that's that's what they did in, in school. You know, and I think putting this in perspective, too, is that, you know, when my kids were in Chinese school, I remember going back and actually looking at all the characters that were introduced to those students. And they, you know, and I'm, you know, from day one, well, frankly, <laughs> one, one thing is also to note is a lot of kids that, Chinese kids that go into elementary school, they already know a lot of characters because their parents are already, you know, drilling them on it. But it's assumed that they don't, right? Because not every kid is going to be at the same mm. level. But um, I went back and I looking at like the first grade, I looked the first and second semester, second grade and third grade and fourth grade and the first, second semesters. And I counted up the number of new characters that were introduced. And I'm telling you, like in the first year of first grade, um, they it was about, if I recall, were, were collected, it was 634 characters. Now, this was the Shanghai curriculum. And then when you get into the second year, there was something about 700, 750. In the third year, I think it was like 800. But, I mean, if you kind of put that in perspective, I mean, that's what they're used to. So that's their kind of, a lot of native Chinese might be trying to project that onto you. And they're kind of like, well, that's how many characters I had to learn. And we have to learn all these characters to be really proficient in writing and reading the language. So you are going to need to do the same thing. But it's a totally different game. Remember, you're an L2 learner, a second language learner. You, this is not your native language. And how we learn and the speed at where we're going to learn is going to be very different as opposed to a native. Right. Those kids, they already have quite a big vocabulary. Uh, their pronunciation is perfect. And they have the basic grammar of the language down. But you have to do that all at the same time when you're first starting out. And I think it's also kind of useful to take a look at um, some things that have happened in the past. In past years, there were these sinologists that were studying like Chinese and classical Chinese, but they couldn't go to China for political reasons. So there actually were people that studied characters, but couldn't really speak it. Uh, they couldn't even read it fluently at all, even though they could read it and they know what it meant. That has happened in the past, but I don't think that's what anyone wants nowadays. I think pretty much everyone I talk to, they want to be literate in Chinese, but of course they want to be able to communicate reasonably fluently face-to-face -face in Chinese, right? Oh, that's right. Oh, and real quick, John, if you want to hear a story about someone like that, you can go back to our episode number 10 with John D'Andrea. That was his experience. <laughs> he learned to like read fluently the language, and then when China opened up, he had the opportunity to go to China, and it was that, that whole new experience for him. It's a pretty cool story. Episode 10, John D'Andrea. Yeah, so the, there are people like that, but I feel like that's kind of a relic of the past. Nowadays, mm -hmm. you definitely want to establish a bit of spoken fluency first, and then you start into characters. So I also want to jump back to a question Jared had about, you know, what if you really like the characters? Is it bad to start fairly early? And it's not, as, as long as you got the foundations down. If you're interested, then go with your interest. Don't let your interest die just because, uh, you know, you're afraid of learning too much, you know, that's probably not going to happen. Mm -hmm. But if you really are afraid of learning characters, you think you don't need it, you don't want it. Uh, one question I get sometimes is, well, can I just skip it? Does it, does it matter? I just don't want to learn characters. 
And, you know, of course, in this podcast, uh, we're all about uh, literacy as well as fluency. So we're not going to advocate that. But there are some people that maybe they, they don't even want to get beyond the, the very basic conversational level Chinese. And if that's you, like you only want very basic Chinese, I guess you could, you know, you could get to that level. And then if you like Chinese and you want to keep going, then start learning characters. Um, but for most people, you, you don't really want to just totally uh, rule out the possibility of learning characters. Because to bring up two examples of people I've worked with in the past, um, I have one client named Anne, 62 years old. She's learning characters from scratch, and she's doing great. She was originally very intimidated by the fact that you know she was a bit older, but she's learning them. You can do it. Age is not a factor. Mm -hmm. um, I even have one guy that I met back in my Chinese pod days. His name is Anthony, and he's blind. Oh, wow. This, this is, this is going to blow your mind, but blind people can read Chinese. <laughs> oh, Don, um, I've never even broached this question. Like, Is there some sort of Braille system for blind Chinese people? I, I'm not an expert on this, um, and he did show it to me when he visited, but there's actually two systems. One is kind of like a Braille for, for pinyin, and I think it's different from regular English Braille. And another is there's actually a special system where you can feel the raised characters. So you can actually feel oh, wow. you know, the structure of the characters. Okay, so this guy is blind and he's learning Chinese characters. So <laughs> if, if that doesn't inspire you to like try a little harder, then I don't know what will. <laughs> That's amazing. That's really cool. You know, John, I love that story. And, and even just about, I, I've been in, you know, we get emails from our readers uh, frequently. And I've had, uh, gosh, over the years, I can recall, I had one lady, she was 65 years old, and she was learning Chinese so she could do Bible study with her neighbors uh, who are Chinese. And I, I really admired that. And then, of course, I, I, I also would recommend uh, Steve Kaufman, if, you, if you've heard about him. We interviewed him in episode 15. He speaks like 20 languages. He, I think he's, gosh, he's in his seventies now and he's still like learning new languages. So, you know, you're never too old to learn and, uh, it, it's, it's, it, you can, you can do it. And on that note, John, I started learning Chinese when I was 30. So I know there are some people out saying you can't learn new language over 30 or 40 or whatever. Yeah, that, that's a bunch of bull. So, you know, you can learn Chinese if you just apply yourself. All right. And I want to give two other tips here. One is if you're intimidated by characters, but you want to keep learning Chinese, you want to improve your speaking, it's not a bad idea to just kind of casually dip into characters a little bit. It's not an all or nothing thing, right? Like you could buy a book, uh, not Chinesey, uh, but you could buy a book, you could get an app like Duolingo, or I think it's called Drips, to just kind of casually start learning some characters. And you might discover that it's not nearly as intimidating as you first thought, and then it's actually kind of fun. And then... After you have that little bit of exposure, you might feel better about adding it into your full comprehensive studies program. Absolutely. And I think that comes back to like asking that question of yourself, what are your goals? You know, like if you just want some simple Chinese to travel around China or a Chinese speaking country or just talk to that attractive individual at the Chinese restaurant that you've been going there frequently for, you know, you may just need something very simple and basic and maybe Chinese characters is not going to be part of your goal. But, you know, if you really want to start to learn Chinese, here's the question I always kind of ask <laughs> as, as I pose it to people. Sometimes I say, all right, you don't want to learn 
to learn Chinese characters. That means if you're going to learn to speak, you're going to be illiterate in Chinese. And really think, how far is illiteracy going to take you in this world? It's really going to limit your opportunities. So think about it that same way. So think of your native language. If you had learned to speak it, but chose for whatever reason not to learn how to read it or write it, you're illiterate. And if that's the case, you may not even be listening to this podcast today. It, it severely limits your opportunities to navigate this world. And it will obviously limit your opportunities to navigate in any Chinese-speaking environment or country or whatever opportunities you want to pursue. And just in case there are any of you out there that are imagining being literate in Chinese as this guy with a brush, like painting beautiful characters on a scroll, remember, we're talking about digitally literate. You just got to be able to type out the pinyin, which of course you have a very strong foundation in, and then of the characters that pop up in the input method, you know, identify the correct ones for the characters that go in the words that you're trying to write. All right. So putting pen to paper is something that you might want to do, but you don't have to do it. So don't think that yeah. writing on paper is an absolute requirement. It is not. This is 2021 now. And we, I've shared this story, John. We've talked about this so many times, but learning to handwrite characters is an entirely different skill in and of itself. It's like preparing to win the spelling bee every time, you know, and you know, also, I, I, I've said this again many, many times on this podcast, is that the only times where I find the need to write characters, handwrite characters, is when I'm filling out some sort of government form or writing down my address for someone. And even then, that's, I mean, it's, it comes back to actually government forms these days. <laughs> I don't know. John, I'm sure you maybe use it just a little more frequently in your life, but I, I know that mm. the, the opportunities are limited. Not a ton. And, and being able to write my Chinese name uh, when people want my Chinese name, that's something that is not too hard and it's useful. Okay, so um, I want to move on to one final big question. And so I know there are some learners out there, maybe they're around the elementary level, they're kind of getting their feet in casual conversation, and they're, they're not totally afraid of learning characters, but they're just starting to wonder, is it time? Is it time to learn characters? And so are there any signs that it is time to learn characters? Uh, well, one sign is that if you're asking the question, it might be time. Mm -hmm. But um, if you feel good about your opinion, you know, you know your tone change rules. You know, you're you're getting somewhat solid on your tones. You don't have to be perfect because you're not going to be perfect on tones for a very long time, if ever. But uh, you're feeling fairly good about your tones. One thing that might happen with your uh, Chinese teacher that kind of indicates that it's time to learn characters is when you learn a new word, and you're like, oh this part of this word, is that the same as that other word? And then the teacher's like, oh no, that's a different character. Mm -hmm. If you find that happening a lot, like your, your brain is trying to form connections between words, but you keep getting stumped by the, the, the teacher going, oh, that's a different character. Um, that's like a very big clue that if you start learning characters, you're gonna be able to start making these connections correctly, which will really help your, your vocabulary. Absolutely, and that's the time when you start having that opportunity to match the squiggle with the sound, right? <laughs> and honestly, I felt like, you know, those are awesome learning opportunities for you too because if you're asking that question, you want to know, and then you see, oh, no, this is this ye, and that's this ye, and you see, oh, those are two different characters, and it has a much better chance of sticking with you and something that you can begin to require and start using in your language. 
Yeah, and, and honestly, your brain is naturally trying to make these connections. It's really trying. So, so throw it a bone. Don't uh, you know? Don't keep thwarting it. Help it out. Give it some characters to attach some meaning to and to draw more connections because that's what learning is, right? It's drawing connections between between what you don't know and what you do know, and then making it your own. And I have a great illustrative story about this. If you go back and listen to episode number 13, it's, um, it, we have an interview with Daniel Keefe. Now, Daniel, I've known him for a long time, I guess when I first came to China. And uh, he, he's been an executive in China for a number of years. Uh, I think at this stage, he's been there over 20 years. But the first 15 years, he kind of dabbled in Chinese, and he never really got anywhere. He was, he, he, was, he was quickly becoming one of those guys who'd been, you know, most of his career in China and still didn't learn Chinese. And there came a point where, uh, if you listen to the interview, he talks about how he got laid off from his job in a difficult time. And he decided, well, you know what? I'm here. I'm just going to take Chinese classes full time. Now, mind you, he was like 60 years old at this point. And he buckled down and he started really getting serious about Chinese. And I, I asked him this question. I said, like, what was it that really made the difference for you in, in moving beyond just like this, being able to say like random words in Chinese to actually like, hey, now I can start really learning Chinese progressing. He says, he says it was characters. He said previously, every effort that he had put into learning Chinese, he had focused solely on pinyin. And he had textbooks that were just pinyin textbooks whenever he, if he ever had a tutor or something he says I don't want to worry about characters but this time it was different and he started learning characters and it just it changed everything for him and so now he had like a competent level of Chinese where he could actually work with others in Chinese you know, speak to his co-workers in Chinese and it totally changed his whole experience and it's a great interview uh, once again it's episode number 13 and with Daniel Keefe. And it, it was a great, you know, he, he kind of realized how he had missed out on this <laughs> for so many years because he just didn't take the time to learn characters. And it's, it's amazing what literacy can do. Literacy can do, and this is something I, I take away an insight. I, I don't have any research behind this, but this is one of my, my personal beliefs is that literacy develops our language in ways that spoken language cannot. Yeah, I don't think that's much of a stretch. Totally true. And, and also, I, I want to point out that um, if you're imagining being literate as just reading books, um, there are much lower bars. And one of the first things you're going to want to do as you start to become literate in Chinese is just to be able to chat, like in WeChat, uh, using Chinese. It's way easier than you think. Like You can start doing it pretty quickly. So um, it's not nearly as far off as you think. You know, there are graded readers uh, which are much easier to, to read than a regular Chinese novel. But just being able to simply chat in, uh, you know, in a basic chat program in Chinese is not that far off. So it's related to communication as well. All right, now it's time for a word from our sponsor. And today our sponsor is... The Chinese Grammar Wiki. Thank goodness. So All Set Learning has the Chinese Grammar Wiki, a repository of all the grammar points that you might want to learn. Um, it is not a course. Mm -hmm. It is a reference. Anytime you're curious about a grammar point, you can look it up. Yes. So don't get this thing and just try to go through it and study all the points. No, 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 no. 
Yeah, it's not just a start to finish study at all. It's a reference. If you have a question, it can often answer those questions. So the Chinese Grammar Wiki is a free website. You can go on there and browse it to your heart's content. But it is also available in book form. And we have the A1 and A2 elementary version, the intermediate version. And now we have an upper intermediate version in ebook form um, for anyone who wants to have it offline and searchable on their Kindle. Um, it is now available. So uh, if uh, you haven't seen the wiki before, check it out. It's free. And if you're interested in that book, it is now available. Also to note that for every Manor Companion book, all the grammar points used in every book and every chapter are referenced in that grammar wiki. So it's a great study resource if you're using our books. Yeah, you can actually go on the grammar wiki and see all the grammar points for all of our different books, even if you don't have the books. Um, it's all on there. It's free. Check it out. All right, now it's time for rants and raves. John, what do you got for us today? You got a rant or do you have a rave? I have a rave. When I was talking about Anthony, the, the guy who was learning to read Chinese, even though he was blind, I was reminded uh, of a friend a while ago who taught me some, some Chinese sign language. And so I want to give a shout out to Chinese sign language because it is really interesting. If you've ever learned sign language, you probably know this, but sign language is not a universal language. It's different in every country. Mm -hmm. And so Chinese sign language is very different in that it references characters. So like uh, if you want to say a person in Chinese sign language, you do this thing with your two pointer fingers that looks like the character for person. That means person. Huh. Uh, and there's a, bunch of, there's a bunch of signs in Chinese sign language that work that way. Uh, I just thought it was super interesting how you know, the spoken word always comes first, followed by a writing system. And in this case, Chinese sign language was kind of partly derived from that writing system. Pretty cool. You know, on that note, John, I had this really interesting experience once on the subway in Shanghai where it was later in the evening, few people on there, and these two individuals got on the subway. And I didn't realize it at the time, but they were both deaf. And one had a WeChat video call going on. One was holding the phone, and the other guy was signing, you know, into the camera, <laughs> into the other person, and they were signing back. Yeah, yeah. So they were having this conversation back and forth via, you know, in sign language on a video chat. It was super cool. I was like, whoa, mind blown. Never thought of it that way. Yeah, yeah. The proliferation of like, you know, YouTube and just video chat in general has been a huge boon to the deaf community. Um, you know, unfortunately, I don't think we have a lot of deaf people in our audience, but um, if you know any deaf people, you, you'll notice that, you know, they're really making full use of the video these days. They're more connected than ever before. Yeah, that's cool stuff. So you got to rant or rave, Jared. All right. I think mine's more ravish because I, 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 I wasn't totally up with this, but I, I ran across this really interesting article. It was on Wired, wired.com. The author of this article is John Alexander, and it was titled, If You Can Learn Twitch Speak, You Can Learn a Language. And so he, he talks about how uh, his experience to try to, I, as I'm assuming, he's talking a lot about learning Chinese, but it, it talks about, hey, if you're into Twitch and you're into gaming, and if anyone's not familiar with Twitch, it's primarily, it's like a live stream thing for gamers. You can watch people playing games and you can tip them and stuff. And they're always interacting with their followers and their audience and stuff. Um, right. Anyway, and so there's some really popular Twitchers out there. But he's talking about, hey, if you follow like some of these Chinese uh, guys on Twitch, you know, they're, you know, in the gaming, you're obviously, you know, yelling things at the, your opponents. You're, you know, it's usually like shoot them up games or something like that. And you're 
frequently repeating certain things. There's all these emojis going on. And he's saying, hey, this is a, a great opportunity, especially for like gamers, to be in a, like a high context environment. Now, I was impressed in this article. He goes on to cite you know, his sources saying, hey, it can take up to 17 exposures of new words to in, to encounter like in different contexts to really understand them. He even talks about, hey, I was so impressed by this. He says, experts and linguists suggest that students need to know about 98% of the words in a text to be able to casually enjoy it. I'd say casually. Hey, hey. you know, but that's, that's the extensive reading levels, 98% comprehension. So I'm like, Hey, he, he did some homework. I, I, I really like that. Uh, and so he's kind of saying, Hey, you should follow some of these, you know, different gamers or people. And you can, if you, if you know a lot of game speak, you're going to start to learn some of this stuff. So I think, uh, I, I'd say it's kind of more, more ravish. I think this is a really interesting, uh, new idea. I don't think it's great for like a beginner, right? I don't think this is someone for just like, I'm just going to start learning Chinese right now. But I think it's, it would be great for someone who is, you know, been a little further down the road, um, is, wants to get a little more exposure. If you're a gamer, you're interested in some of this stuff, hey, go out there and look for some, some Chinese uh, guys on Twitch. And, you know, and you can start picking up maybe some of those characters, those slang, and, and be in some sort of a high-context environment for you. And I'm and honestly, if you type to those Twitchers, you know, you can you can respond. You send them messages on the live chat, and oftentimes they'll reply to you. So it could be a, a fun opportunity to practice some Chinese. It was a great idea. I'll put the link to the article in the show notes. So, so wait, just to be clear, the person doing the streaming has audio, but you're talking about the people commenting in text on the live stream. Correct. Correct. No audio. So, so the gamer, you can see him, and uh, you know he's got his video webcam going on. And he's speaking, and you can also see the in-game what he's what he's playing, how what his you can see his screen, uh, and but there's a live stream as well, so you you know people are typing, making comments. You can also donate to them, things like that. So it's uh yeah, it's, it. a, it'd be a cool environment. So you, you should check it out. All right, enough about Twitch. We have an interview, right? Oh, let's kick right to it. My name is Adam. I currently live in uh, Las Vegas. I've lived over in China for a little over five years. I'm a marketing director at a business consulting company, but they, in the future, want to appeal to the Chinese market. It only takes a few minutes with Adam before you realize what a great guy he is. I started falling in love with it immediately. The challenge behind it, it was so different from any other romance language I had learned. As I started getting more and more into it, I started loading on Chinese classes like Chinese, you know, literature, Chinese language, Chinese movies. There was a movie class that was cool. You know, at that point, no part of me thought that I would have a future in Chinese just because I guess nobody told me. It took an introspective moment for Adam to realize that his passion lied in Chinese. Once he finally realized that, he didn't let anything stand in his way of pursuing his dreams, accumulating countless stories to tell along the way. Stay with us. Now here's the big question. Why did you start learning Chinese? always loved learning languages, cultures since I was a little kid. Took French in middle school, Spanish in high school, you know, kind of the typical thing. So I was actually studying geology at West Virginia University. And I was taking a summer mm -hmm. course, staying there for the summer, and I was a couple credits short of being a full-time student. So I started looking through the uh, course catalog just to pick up a quick, easy 
course. And I'm like, all right, I want to learn a language. Why not? Started going through the catalog and I'm like, eh, Arabic, no. And then I was kind of like scrolling through and I'm like, oh, Italian. All right. <laughs> My grandma's Italian. So let's do it. So I showed up to the first day in Italian class. There were like 20, 30 students. It was a pretty awful experience. The teacher was really? very, very dry. The stack of textbooks was crazy. And it was like, just like a textbook from the 80s. Like, I think it was four or five chapters before it got to, here's how you say ciao and things like that. So wow. really dry, really slow. The class let out and I stayed in the classroom just to do some extra homework or something. And I was kind of, you know, depressed at that point. It was like, oh, this is going to be a brutal summer course. Questioning and life decisions. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm sitting there and a young Chinese girl walks in and she's like, oh, are you here for the Chinese class? And I'm like, oh, no, sorry. I was in the Italian class. I'll get out of here. And she's like, wait, before you go, is there any chance I can convince you to drop Italian and come into my Chinese class? I only have four students and I need five to make it a actual class or else it's going to get canceled. Wow. So yeah. she was fun and young and I was like, oh, all right. So the next day I showed up into the Chinese class and that's kind of how it started. And from there, it just, you know, out of control. I started wow. falling in love with it immediately. The challenge behind it, it was so different from any other romance language I had learned. And, you know, there was one textbook that we honestly hardly ever used. To me, like that teacher was probably someone who really engaged you, really influential on you. And I know it's also great when you have like a really small group of people. I mean, you said five people in the class. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. I mean, as opposed to some people starting these classes that have 20, 30 students in it. Absolutely. And that, that was a huge factor going forward. I mean, as I started getting more and more into it in my normal classes, I started loading on Chinese classes like Chinese, you know, literature, Chinese language, Chinese movies. There was a movie class that was cool. You know, at that point, no part of me thought that I would have a future in Chinese, just because I guess nobody told me, and I never knew anybody that made a career or a living off Chinese. But that was a huge motivating factor behind me sticking with it was the other four classmates I was really close to. We supported each other. We were doing dialogues with each other every day. And then the teacher kept telling me, no, you guys are really good at this. Just keep going with it. Keep going. You know, that's really important. You know, a lot of times I, I've talked to different people, have so many different experiences, especially mm -hmm. in university programs. Some people, you know, have like this really hard, strict teacher. It's like, you know, you got to write all the characters and they kind of like weed people out of the class. Yes. But it sounds to me as like the program, I'm guessing, was probably struggling, right? They're trying to just get people in. And so it was maybe a little bit of a different attitude with some of the teachers saying, hey, we really got to help these students get along. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it worked. I remember at one point, my geology grades were dropping. They were like plummeting. And I was getting straight A's in Chinese because I loved it. And I was super interested in it. And, you know, kind of goes back to that motivation. My motivation for geology was I wanted to get out of college, make a lot of money in oil and gas and have that be my life. And there was one point where I went into the teacher's office, the head of the department, and she was like, listen, you have to keep learning. And I'm like, I can't. My geology grades are falling. I'm getting obsessed with Chinese and it's not working. And she's like, listen, if you do one more semester, Chinese will be locked in your brain forever. If you stop now, you're going to forget it all in a week, which obviously now that I'm an advanced learner, <laughs> I know that that was garbage because, yeah, if, yeah. you know, they're native Trying speakers. To keep you the program. <laughs> exactly. It was complete garbage, but it totally worked. And I was like, fine, okay, I'll take one more semester. And that's kind of how it 
kept going. She kept having to convince me one more semester, one more semester. And then eventually it ended with me doing the last study abroad in China. And that's where things really started, you know, kind of turn around for me and started to realize how much opportunity there was out there. Adam, this is really cool because you know, I, we had a guest once on here, Terry Waltz. She said sometimes like uh, language classes, those are classes where we should be excited. We should hope that everyone gets an A. Mm-hmm. And if everyone's getting an A, then the teacher's doing the right thing. So I hope if there's any teachers listening, hey, you know, let's get students through, not weed them out. Absolutely. And obviously life-changing work that they're doing. Well, what's clear to me, Adam, is like you have got a talent for languages, but yeah. you know, what was it about Chinese that captivated you? I mean, you easily could have done this with Spanish or yeah. maybe Italian or, or another language, but here we are. I remember from the very beginning going into that first class and it was labeled Pinion Week. And it was this big, like, everybody was scared of it because apparently during normal semesters, Pinion Week weeded out 90% of the class, and all of a sudden the class would go from 20 to 5. So going into a foreign language classroom and starting off with something as different and complex as Pinyin, for me, it was a cha- little challenge, but it was introduced to me at a level that I could digest it. So I think the challenge and how different the language was from anything I've ever learned before had me really hooked on it. And uh, obviously, we talked about the classmates kind of supporting me, but I wouldn't say I was interested in the language and in the culture, and I wasn't sold on the language until I went to China. And then I started realizing all these different things about the culture and the people, and that's when I really started to fall in love with it and decided to make it the rest of my life. Where did you go your first time in China? We went to Beijing. We were studying for, it was two months at the teaching university there, Beijing Shifan Dashia. So when I went over to China and started speaking Chinese with the locals and at McDonald's and all those places, you see faces light up and you see people trying to talk to you and laughing. And it's just that environment of supporting and being impressed and having fun with people trying to speak their language was uh, something that made it even more, like, significantly more enjoyable. It's like, okay, every new word I learn, every new sentence I'll learn, it's going to be respected by the local people, and I'm going to be able to actually communicate and things like that. So that was a huge motivating factor going forward. Can you remember about that time, any breakthrough moment you had? I remember recording myself going up to order Balza. And it was this little Bauza guy that I went to every morning for like five little mini Bauza. And I loved them. And I had a little phone in my pocket and I was recording the whole thing. I remember kind of watching it and be like, man, that was definitely a breakthrough because I was still elementary at that point. I couldn't hold a conversation, but I could order some Bauza. So for that, being able to watch it and watch myself and say, oh my God, like I actually, I can do that. I can go up and order. That's a great story. And in fact, that's even a good insight, I think, and an idea even for, you know, any learners listening to this. Hey, stick your phone in your pocket, right? Record your interaction with someone. That, yeah. Did you go back and look at that and learn from it? Oh, yeah, hundreds of times. And that's something I actually, even up until like a couple years ago, when I was starting to use Chinese in business and in meetings and, you know, I was holding presentations in Chinese and things like that. But I would almost always record the entire session. There was one point at a travel company in China where one of my bosses was from southern China and had a pretty thick accent, and I had trouble understanding him quite often. So 
I would record the whole conversation. I would get the gist of what he was saying, but I would go back, listen to the whole thing and like pick it apart for every sentence and every word I didn't understand. So that's something I still do to this day, record myself, go back, listen and kind of correct where I went wrong. But I, yeah, the first couple times I remember seeing those videos and the recordings and being like, wow, this is, you know, I'm actually doing pretty good. And even like if you compare it to a romance language like French or Italian, like everybody knows the intro sentences, you know, the couple basic high and by and things like that. But in Chinese, even if you can spit those out, it's impressive, especially in the minds of the locals. Well, Adam, you came back to the States. I mm-hmm. assume you finished your degree. At the beginning, you had these grand plans to go make money working in oil and gas. Yeah. But what changed? So I go back to West Virginia, and I'm still convinced at that point. The only thing speaking Chinese in my mind was going to do was give me a cool skill to go talk at Chinese restaurants. Later, I would learn there's a million options of things you can do. But I continued to kind of ignore that side of it and carry on with geology. So I actually ended up going to grad school in Ohio for hydrogeology, so water science. I remember the first thing I did was look up does Ohio University have Chinese classes? They have a Chinese course. And they did. And I was like, okay, cool. So I signed up for the highest one, whatever the advanced one was. And I found myself doing the same exact thing I had done in West Virginia, which is completely ignore my geology work and just focus solid (laughs) on. And it was to the point where like, I was telling myself like, yeah, I studied for five hours today, but it was all on Chinese. You know, I wasn't cheating. I was just doing this instead of that. So it was even to the point where I would, you know, everything was typed at that point. And I graduated in 2014. So everything was already, all the tests, all the essays mainly were on computers and I could type out my prompts and all of that. And I was to the point where I refused to do that. And I was handwriting all of my assignments, which, you know, obviously took significantly longer and it was completely uncalled for, but I was, you know, super into it. So that's what I was Mr. doing. Overachiever and here. I know. It was mainly out of avoiding my geology work is, is what that was. <laughs> An essential life skill. You know? Yeah, exactly. Being very productive <laughs> in something else other than what you're supposed to be doing. Right. right. Oh, man. Yeah, that's my life story. But I can remember the exact moment. I had a little office because I was a grad student. And I thought originally geology was going to get me outdoors. And I love being outside and hiking and all that. So that's another thing that I kind of realized pretty quick was no in fact like if you're working in oil and gas and all of that you're just looking at charts and data all day and it's running models on software and things like that so I was sitting in my office looking at 10 excel spreadsheets and just numbers and isotopes and all this stuff and I was like no my heart is not even a little bit in this anymore I had struggled with it my whole university career and now it's into my master's so I started looking up jobs in China. I ended up dropping out of my grad school and moving over to Beijing to be a teacher, like most of us who end up going over there for the first time. And I was living in Athens, Ohio. It's a cute little town, but especially after coming back from the big city of Beijing, it was like, you know, something was pulling me back constantly. So that's what I ended up doing. And I found myself in Beijing a few months after I started grad school. (laughs) Wow. Now that is quite a story. Thanks yeah. for sharing that out. <laughs> yeah. you know, I have a lot of respect for that. It's not easy to make that big oh, I know. change. I mean, what were your friends? What were parents saying? 
Yeah, that was another kind of positive for me being at Ohio is I did not make a lot of friends. It was actually kind of cutthroat, to be honest, over in the grad school, that department, because it was everybody was kind of competing for the same jobs, if you can imagine that. You know, like once you graduate, my classmates, we're all going to compete for the top jobs. So everybody wants their name on top of the papers. Everybody wants the credit for these assignments mm, and things. So yeah. it was hard to make, you know, good friends over there. part of academia. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And that's something people don't tell you when you go to grad school. My parents were hesitant, especially with me wanting to move over there, but they supported it, which was great. I think when I made the decision in my mind, I must have been on a plane two weeks later. You know, I'm wow, sure. I, that's yeah. fast. And I'm sure that's it's changed fast. now, but back in 2015, especially out of English teaching, if you wanted to work yeah. there, you could get the visa in a snap. Wow. That's a, that's an exciting story. And, you know, sometimes we use that concept of the gambler's dilemma. You uh-huh. know, it's kind of like, oh, all right, you know, I've already put, you know, four years into this and another year, right? I got to ride this out where, you know, in reality, the the financial terms that sunk costs, right? Yeah. That all the time's gone. You can't get it back. It's over. And so it's, you might as well start doing what you want to do now, as opposed to waiting another 10 years down the road and say, I made a big mistake. That's exactly right. And that's something I talked about a lot with, with my parents and all of that. And actually I didn't mention that because I put it in this like deep, dark corner of my mind where I would never remember it again, how much money I spent (laughs) on starting grad school there and, you know, moving all of my stuff to Ohio. And yeah, it was a huge cost, but you're right. You know, you start considering it the other way where, you know, if I'm not happy with geology now, it's not going to change. You know, money obviously isn't the ultimate factor in happiness. So, you know, once you kind of make that realization and kind of just dive in head first, obviously super happy I did, changed my life and, you know, for the better. So, you went to China then. Mm-hmm. You're teaching English. And anyone listening, hey, if you want to get to China, the easiest way is to go teach English. You don't even have to be a native English speaker. Right? No. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> you know, if you can understand this podcast, you probably your English is good enough to go. <laughs> uh, but a lot of people go to China to teach English, but they don't speak any Chinese. Right. So I want to hear about like what opportunities did Chinese open up for you? And like many people who go to China have that goal of getting out of teaching English and to mm-hmm. something else. So what happened for you? And what doors did your Chinese open? So when I went over there, there's a big difference between college learning and, you know, practicing your Chinese in real life. So I, I could hold a quick conversation, but it was nowhere near fluent or advanced even. So I started off teaching. And I think out of my group of probably 10, 20 other teachers that came in at the same time, a couple of them were at my level to where we know the basics, we can understand quite a bit. But in terms of uh, communicating, it's still a pretty big obstacle. And there's a lot of people who go over with a good foundation, learn a little bit, and then feel comfortable with that level. And they don't mm-hmm. really try to get any higher. You know, it's just kind of that point where, no, I already put my time in. I can speak Chinese, so I'm yeah. not going to go any further. It's going to be on survival. Yeah, yeah exactly. So that was kind of a, a pretty rare thing in the teacher group was to get beyond that survival level. It was one of my main reasons for going over there was, you know, this is going to take my Chinese to a whole new level. So it is something that I was pretty confident with and was sure that I wanted to do. Many English teaching companies over there will offer you like night lessons and things like that. So I outgrew those pretty quick. Loved them, outgrew yeah, them. Yeah, because usually they're pretty basic, right? They have like their own 
people doing the classes and it's just like that intro stuff, right? Exactly. And they're all volunteers. So, I mean, it's nice if you have no Chinese background and you want to know how to get around or order food, they're perfect. But in terms of me, I wanted to get to a higher level. And with the teaching company, for me, teaching got old pretty quick and I was teaching, you know, three-year-olds. It was fun. I like being goofy and all that, but I I felt silly at one point. So I'm like, I want to get to a higher level. So I started setting my sights on being a director in that company or something. So I was a senior teacher at that point, and that's when my Chinese started to pick up, and I felt confident to start doing presentations in Chinese and things like that. What kind of presentations were you doing? During teachers' meetings, we had foreign teachers and local teachers. And a lot of the Mm. local teachers, their English was good for teaching, this is a cat, this is a dog. But in terms of advanced, like, okay, when you go into this software, you have to remember to click this and there are new new clients coming in. For me, I was like, ooh, oh, I opportunity. See, yeah. I can, as a, you know, in a management position, I can hoard all these people together and have the lang- or have the meetings in two languages. A great place to start too, because yeah. it's a little bit low risk, right? It's not like you're pitching Nobody to customers or mm-hmm. investors or whatever, right? Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's part of the problem that I ran into though, was A, my Chinese wasn't good enough to do that at the point. I was jumping the gun and I was too eager. And I found out during my first couple of presentations, like, okay, I'm sweating bullets. Like I'm drenched in sweat up here because I'm so (laughs) nervous. And people are just giggling. Like they kind of take it seriously, but it's like, ah, 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 okay, speak English. They they compliment you on your cute Chinese, Yes, that's exactly (laughs) right. So it was a little frustrating. And then the management was a little, you know, this is an English teaching school. We should be speaking English here only. So I just kind of outgrew the position and I really wanted something to wear. And obviously I think most English teaching companies over there don't allow you to speak Chinese in the classroom. It's kind of like the whole immersion thing, right? So I outgrew it pretty quick and almost immediately I was hopping on job sites looking for something where I could use my Chinese every day in my everyday work life. So that's when I switched over to a travel company as a tour guide. The tours were mainly in English, but you had to communicate with the locals and help translate and all of that. So Mm, that was a huge jump for me. And their requirement was HSK-5. That's what it said on the application. That's a decent level of proficiency, you know. Absolutely. John and I, we we have our critiques of HSK levels, you know. There's maybe a lot of extemporaneous characters, you know, I think in some of those levels. (laughs) But if you get to HSK 5, you're going to have some solid Chinese. Yeah, and I was not there at that point. So that's the first point where I was like, oh, like I'm not good enough in Chinese for something I want. So that was a great Mm. motivating factor. I was like, okay, well, now I have something to set my sights on. And I went to the textbooks, the flashcards. It was college all over again, which for me was a blast and doing every day after work classes and things like that. And eventually got to that level, got the job. And that's kind of where my advanced Chinese started. You skipped through that part there, mm-hmm. Adam, in like two seconds. Yeah. Oh, got to no, that point. this I was... Mean, <laughs> how long did that take you? Beyond I mean, that, some of that textbook flashcard stuff, what were you doing to really improve your proficiency at that level? And how long did it take, do you think, do you got to that level? A long time. It still took another couple of years to get to where I am now, to where it's like unbarred conversation. No matter what you want to talk to me about, I'm good with it. But from the time that I left the English teaching to go to the travel company must have been about a year and a half of like every single day studying nonstop. And there are a million 
little setbacks and times where you think like, no, this is impossible. This is stupid. And a lot of setbacks, yeah. your confidence gets destroyed. And yeah, I did yeah. go through it in three seconds, but it's a long, painful process. That's definitely worth it in the end. But there were a couple times where I doubted myself a lot. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing that experience because even like on the HSK, I, I once had a, a, one of our guests on the podcast here mm-hmm. where he passed HSK5, but he's like, I am not HSK5. Yeah. Yeah, you know? exactly. We've had email exchanges with this one guy. And initially, he was shooting to be HSK4 or something. But after listening to us and looking at things, he decided, you know what? I'm dropping it. Yeah. I don't care about the HSK. Like his focus changed. Like, hey, I'm focused on being conversational. He's setting his own personal goals of proficiency. And it worked well for him. So I had the job interview and then I had the test, I think like a week later. And during the job interview, they're like, okay, and your Chinese level? I'm like, yeah, I'm sitting down for the HSK-5 in a couple weeks. I'll have that for you. I'm really confident with it. And they're like, okay, no problem. So time went on. I was on a trip of theirs. I missed my test and they never brought it up again. So oh, wow. I never sat for it. I never <laughs> took the test, but I know that I'm at the level because I was studying so hard for it. You know, I remember listening to this conference once and we had uh, one of these educators. He was discussing the difference between the HSK test and in America, you know, here we have for high schoolers, there's the AP Chinese test. Right. And, and the big thing always when I've talked to Chinese teachers, you know, like the AP Chinese test, there's no character list. There's no character list. But the HSK test is more quantitative while the AP exam here in the United States is mm-hmm. more qualitative. You can say, I passed HSK-5, but I'm not HSK-5, like that one guy. Yeah. Because you can just like flashcard your way up, right? And yeah, exactly. And some sort of reading level where you can handle it, but you may not be conversationally, quote unquote, HSK-5. I've heard people, you know, put that title around their neck, like on a chain, like, yeah, HSK-3. I'm like, yeah, but can you go and have a conversation and do all this and it is a really big difference. And, you know, you get really confident with it and you're like, oh, yeah, I passed this test. And then you have a realization where like, wow, I'm not even close to being the best that I could be. And you have to go back and kind of relearn a lot of this stuff, which a lot of people don't realize. The amount of relearning when you get to like upper intermediate advanced level, the amount of reteaching yourself you have to do is just insane. But a lot of people get stuck in that rut. Can you think of a story like that? My girlfriend at the time, she's now my wife, from Inner Mongolia. So like way northern China, kind of on the border of Mongolia. We met teaching actually at that teaching company, my first one. So we're driving up. We've been dating for, you know, a few months. And my Chinese, it was one of those exact points that I was just, just describing. I was confident with it. And I was like, I'm not learning anymore. I'm great. And we're driving up. And at one point she turns to me and she's like, okay, we got to talk about something. I'm like, Okay. When we get to my parents' house, there's going to be a lot of people there, and your Chinese is great. And I was like, oh boy, here we go. So your Chinese is great. But if you could do me a favor when you get up there and maybe not talk like a little girl, that would be huge for everybody in the family. So like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Talk like a little girl. What was happening? So so I'm like, do I talk like a little girl? And she's like, no, 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 no. But yes. You do. <laughs> so it wasn't no, until yes. yeah, it wasn't until that moment that I realized, wow, my whole learning career, I've been taught by young, particularly Taiwanese women, 
And from my experience in China, I've been teaching three-year-olds and listening to three-year-olds speak Chinese. So I had that like realization to where, oh no, I've learned just by mimicking young women. And it's to that point that I realized like, man, this is something that I do have to learn. Maybe this is why people are laughing at me when I, you know, this is why my Chinese is cute <laughs> and not authoritative. So when I get up there, sure enough, this is way Northern China. Dialect is really heavy, but it's even little cultural things. Like at one point during that trip, she said, you have to stop saying thank you. Like you say thank you mm -hmm. way too much. I'm like, I do. Yeah. And she's like, yes. And not only do you say xie xie too much, but you add like a xie xie ya or something like that at the end and you have got to stop <laughs> and just switch to like a gut or like a ho ho. So I had to go back and teach myself all these like little things. So that was a huge time. I had to go back and redo my whole language set. This aspect is something that John and I have talked about before on this podcast. It's like finding your voice, mm -hmm. right? the beginning, it's this foreign language, right? Yeah. You kind of have like a different persona almost. And then it comes to a point where you get that proficiency level where it's like, wait, this is a real language and you got to like find your own voice. You got to be you in it. And that, that sounds like it was a fun story of finding that for yourself. I mean, people don't realize, especially Chinese, how much of it is just mimicking especially with the tones, like it's like sing-songy. Yeah, so you, yeah, you, gotta you mimic. The, you got to mimic the tones. If you, if you don't, you're never going to get it. That's exactly right. Or else you're, you know, you're not going to be understood. So realizing that, wow, I've only ever learned from those type of people. And that was actually one of the skills that I ended up picking up from that experience was going back, watching TV shows and movies and finding characters. Oh, I want to be like that guy. Like that's who I want to sound like a man. Yeah, right? yeah. I found like the most sophisticated, manly man in the room, and I'm like, I want to be him. And then I memorize <laughs> all of his little phrases and things where everybody's like, "Ooh, he's smart." Like I want to memorize those and bring them up later. So it changed the way I learn, and it changed the way I thought about the language. But that was four years after I started learning Chinese. So you know, to have to go back and change the way you speak is something that is really tough to get past. But once you do, you're right. I found my voice. I feel confident now. I just talk like I'm me. Well, Adam, I want to hear from you. Like if you could go back mm -hmm. and you could do it over again, like what would you do differently? I think I would start preparing for a career in Chinese earlier, for sure. Once I realized that I was going to be good at it and it was something that I had my heart in and I was interested in, just knowing that I could make this a career, like just this skill, like just using Chinese, I could make this a whole successful career is something that I would have loved to hear back when I was in my you know, second year of learning or whenever it was. And, and then from a language aspect, tones. <laughs> I was totally one of those guys who was like, man, tones, I'll learn them later. Everyone can understand me, so I'm not gonna focus on tones. And that yeah, is yeah. a huge mistake. And nobody should ever <laughs> tell themselves that ever because that's another relearning. You know, if you learn without focusing on tones for a couple of years, eventually you're going to have to go back and relearn all of those, even like the easiest yep. ones, the most basic ones, just kind of drilling in tone. So I think language wise, focus on tones from the very beginning. Be relentless with yourself. Don't let yourself get away with any you know, ah, I'm just going to flub over these few words because I don't remember the tones, like really focusing on it is something that probably would have had me fluent faster. 
Well, Adam, this has been really cool. If anyone wants to find anything about you, where can they go? You can either find me on Instagram or my company website, so cancelt.org. And that's Adam at Cancelt. Feel free to send me an email, any questions, any advice you need. I'm always here. Well, Adam, well, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, niece, remote worker, bread maker, cookie baker, student driver, snow shoveler, and that one girl named Kathy. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at mannercompanion.com. Apologies to John Cena, who just ran out of time. The you Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is Kaiser Guo at Sup China. And interview editor is James Harper with Filter Productions. I'd like to thank our guest, Adam DeFrisco, and of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Paston. See you next time.